So before we jump into our passage this morning, let's start off the way we always start off with uh, our young ones, kids. Let me tell you what the scripture is going to be about, what the sermon is going to be about. We have two dogs at home, Peppa and Poppy. And yesterday they got baths because Peppa and Poppy really like to get dirty. Uh, We have this chiminea outside, which people keep like they're mispronouncing chimney. It's, it's called a chiminea. Uh, it's this little chimney, portable thing uh, outside that's it's made of orange clay, and the dogs like to rub up against it. And they rub up against it, and so we've got these yellow labs with these orange streaks and stripes and spots on them that look really, looks really weird. But uh, that's not the worst of it. The clay, the clay stuff on their sides, that's, that's not the worst of it. The worst is our dogs like to roll around in... I wish it was mud. It's not mud. It looks like mud, but it doesn't smell like mud. <clears throat> they roll around in poop, but they don't, not in their own stuff. Like, they're not rolling around in their own stuff. Uh, they, we like to go out to the farm. Uh, we like to go out to the country, and we, we go out to this farm, and uh, we were just out there a couple weeks ago, and, and I'm, I'm driving along with the boys and their grandfather. We're in the truck, and we let the dogs run next to us, <clears throat> and we watch Peppa jump up and nosedive into a cow patty. Do you all know what the cow patty is? It's cow stuff, poop. Uh, and it's just, it's so gross. That's not the worst of it. Another time we're at the farm, I let Peppa out and, and she goes out in the morning and she's running around doing her thing, having some fun. She comes back an hour later for breakfast and she is covered in brown and red something. To figure it out, I find it. She has found a dead animal, and she has rolled around in its carcass. It was the grossest thing I have ever seen. It, she was covered in it, and she was so happy, uh, and she smelled like death, literally. Okay, here's the not fun stuff. Kids, can dogs wash themselves? So how do they get clean? You have to, like, you have to do it. You have to, okay, today's scripture is that the point of it is we cannot clean ourselves either. And you would say, no, 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 I'm really good at, like, taking a bath. I'm really good at cleaning myself. No, no, no. We, all of us, we, not just you, I'm not just picking on you, like, you, your mom and dad, the people sitting next to you, we are all like my dogs. Like, we're like, (laughs) we're like, we're like my friend's little daughter who just the other day tried to change her own diaper. She wiped it on the floor, she wiped it on the walls, and she wiped it all over herself. <laughs> just, her dad was like, stop, stop it, let me do it, let me do it. She, uh, okay, the, the more she tried to get herself clean, the more she got dirtier. Um, that's what we're like. We are like that. We, we stand before Jesus, and we are filthy. That's literally the picture that we're going to see in, in the passage today. So, Here's the big question, kids. Can we get into heaven by being really, really good? Say that. No, we cannot get to heaven by being really, really good. How about this? Kids, can we save ourselves with our good behavior? No. So then how do we get to heaven? God, <laughs> what? Russell, what? 
bad behavior. Uh, that's, you know what? This is where we like to just wrestle with this stuff together. Uh, well, let's say no. That's not how we get to heaven is with our bad behavior, but we can still get to heaven in spite of our bad behavior because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. Because Jesus does come to earth and he is good for us and he lives for us. He has to be good for us, his good behavior. And then he, it's not just that he lives a, a perfect life for us. Then he dies on the cross for us. He takes all of our sin, all of our filth on himself uh, and he gets rid of it on the cross for us. So Jesus does the work of earning heaven for us. Jesus earns heaven for us and then he gives it to you. He gives it to us by grace, totally by grace. It is totally a gift. We don't do anything to deserve it. We don't even do anything to deserve his grace. That's what grace is. And that's the gospel. That's the good news. What you have to do is you have to believe in Jesus. You have to trust in Jesus, not yourself. Okay? That's what the message is going to be about today. We're in our series in the Old Testament book of Zechariah. Uh, uh, Israel, just some catch-up context stuff. Israel, remember, they had been taken into captivity by the big bads of the world at that time, Babylon. The big, huge world empire at that point was Babylon. They come, they destroy Judah, they destroy J Jerusalem, and they take God's people into Babylon for 70 years, captivity. Well, then the next major world power comes along, Persia, and they beat Babylon, and they free Israel. And they say, you can go live wherever you want in our empire. You want to go back to your place? You can go back to your place. You can go back to Jerusalem. Rebuild your walls. Go for it. Rebuild your temple. Go for it. Just remember we're in charge. And so there are, there's a people that goes back to Jerusalem uh, to start building God's temple again. And they, it, they just meet hardness and destruction and suffering just everywhere they go. And everything that they do, uh, they're just getting pounded. Uh, and it's so hard, and they're crying out to God, like, what? what is this? What's going on? We need help. So God sends Zechariah, this prophet, to his people. Uh, and, and we're focusing on the first half of Zechariah. Zechariah is, is divided as this thing called a, a diptych, where it's the two halves of Zechariah mirror each other uh, so perfectly, so wonderfully. The themes, the structure, it's beautiful. We're focusing on the first half, these seven night visions that are given to Zechariah to give to the people. And the, the awesome thing about these visions is they build on one another. And uh, we're going to see that again today. And then the whole book keeps coming back to this main point that God is with his people. So please stand for the reading of Scripture. Uh, this is the fourth vision. In a series of seven, this is the fourth one. Okay? And uh, we're, we're, really, we're going to read the whole vision here, verses 1 to 10. We're focusing on the first three verses. And we're coming back to this vision again next week. So we won't get to everything here, but first three verses is the main, main stuff. Then he showed me, so this is, then God showed Zechariah Joshua. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel 
said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they, are men, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Uh, so I could not really, I asked around, I could not think uh, of an actual movie that has this scene. If there's not one, let's go make a movie and this will be an epic shot in the movie. Okay. Imagine a movie shot that starts with this, you know, panoramic view of, of this gigantic battle and, and the camera zooms in slowly and slowly zooms in on the action until you're right there in the middle of the fight between the two, the protagonist and the antagonist are just going right at each other. If that's what's going on here. In the first vision, the first night vision, the scene is, it's the deep, uh, which is an image of all the forces of evil in the world set against God's people. So the first vision sets the stage of this is a worldwide conflict going on. And then in the second vision, the drama zooms in to reveal the heart of the battle is taking place in the land of Judah, in Israel. And then in the third vision, the drama continues to zoom in to ground zero of the battle. It's the capital city of Jerusalem. Now in the fourth vision, more zooming in until the vision settles and we find ourselves inside the temple inside the holy of holies and standing there is the earthly high priest in zachariah's time this priest named joshua now <clears throat> let's just be clear at, at this point uh it, it, the temple had not been finished and rebuilt most likely not yet but remember this is a vision okay this is a vision and this isn't just the earthly holy of holies it's as, if, it's as if the divide between heaven and earth has been peeled away and the heavenly court has coalesced with the earthly holy of holies. And beings who belong to that invisible realm of heaven, they appear alongside the earthly high priest Joshua. Okay, we've already identified from the previous visions that the angel of the Lord who is, who is standing there before Joshua, the angel of, of the Lord, it, it, he is the Son of God, appearing as an angel. And he stands there as judge to judge Joshua, the high priest. And Joshua stands there as the defendant. And Satan is also standing there. And he is standing there to accuse the defendant. There are only four, there are only four references to Satan in the Old Testament. There are only four. He shows up first in Genesis 3 for real possessing a snake. And he shows up on earth one more time 
uh, in, in 1 Chronicles 21, where, and that's where he tempts King David to take a census that gets David in big trouble, gets Israel in, in big trouble, ends up bringing judgment on Israel. Satan also shows up two other times in the Old Testament. Remember, we're talking about Old Testament here, but it's not on earth. In the book of Job, chapter 1, and here in Zechariah 3, Satan shows up in heaven to accuse all mankind before God. Now, some Bible-believing scholars, uh, some, some in the church, uh, believe that what they hold to this notion that a personal devil kind of, gra- that this personal devil thing gradually emerged out of a more general concept of, of evil. Uh, that, and this is, I would say that is a mistake. Uh, that we are not, as one commentator put it, we are not dealing with the evolution of a metaphysical notion in the Israelite mind. That is, as you progress in the Bible, like from Genesis, you know, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, where he first shows up, as you progress in the Bible, it's not that you're seeing the people of God contemplating evil and then formulating the idea of an evil personal being and then let's slap the name Satan on it. Again, the Old Testament commentary says, we're dealing with the progressive divine revelation of a specific historical identity. That is, as you progress in the Bible, it's that you are, you're seeing God reveal more and more about this evil personal being to his people. Satan is there, and there's Joshua the high priest. Now Haggai, who is Zechariah's contemporary prophet, and God's sending two prophets at this point. Uh, Haggai tells us that Joshua is currently, this guy Joshua is currently the high priest in Jerusalem. So this is a real, real historical figure. This is Zechariah's friend. This is like the same thing of like, you have dreams about your friends, you have dreams about your family members. Like, yeah, so just like that, Joshua shows up in Zechariah's fourth vision. And as the high priest, Joshua represents who he always represents as the high priest. He represents the people of God. So you'd say we're there too. And and it's written all over the high priest that that's who he represents, the people of God, literally written all over him. The high high priest wore these uh, special priestly clothes. And the names of the 12 tribes of Israel are inscribed on two stones on his shoulders. So he's got one precious stone here, one precious stone here, and the names of the 12 tribes of Israel are written on each stone. And then he's got this fancy breastplate uh, uh, ephod thing where it's got 12 stones. Uh, each stone has one of the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on it. So he's got his, if he forgets his prayer requests, bam, they're right there. You can look at him. You know, he knows, he knows what he's got to pray for. He knows who he represents. Um, but when Zechariah sees Joshua the high priest, He's not wearing the priestly clothes. There's no white robe. There's no blue coat. There's no colorful ephod vest with the precious stones and gems. There's no turban of fine linen with, uh, with this gold band uh, that, that has this inscription saying, Holy to Yahweh on it. That is what is ceremonially required of the high priest to wear when he enters the Holy of Holies as if he were entering into the courts of heaven itself. And he's not wearing any of it. He's wearing filthy rags. That is such a G-rated version of what this description is. Go back to Peppa and Poppy. Uh, he, it, he is 
in excrement-covered rags. It's not because, it's not because, ooh, he's not representing Jerusalem, Israel right here. No, the point is, he is representing covenant-breaking Israel, defiled by sin. This is an Old Testament vision using Old Testament priestly imagery, like not, nothing shocking there. But we're going to see that this vision, just like the others, is all about the people of God from the beginning to the end. So this includes us too. So before Satan, there he is to accuse. And before Satan can state his accusation, uh, we actually know what he's going to say. We don't actually ever hear him say it, but we know what he's going to say. He actually wouldn't need to say anything at this point. He could just point. He could stand next to Joshua and do one of these to make his case. And then what he could do, he could do this, and then he could do this. He could point to where Joshua, point to Joshua, and then point to where Joshua is standing. The rubble of the Jerusalem temple uh, that they're trying to rebuild. And, and the imagery there is super, 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 super powerful. When we remember, you got to remember, you got to know this, that the priestly clothes, like all that stuff that the priest wears, and the temple, they actually mirror each other. They share the same design. As in like the priestly clothes are designed after the design of the temple. We can get into that another time. You just need to know that. Like they mirror each other in terms of design and architecture. Uh, and, and right now, the point is, they're both in shambles. Now, this scene should take us back to the beginning. Like back in the Garden of Eden, where Satan stands in that holy place of Eden, and he stands before man, and he accuses God to man. And he says to man, basically, God is guilty of lying to you. He does not really love you. And then here in the holy place of heaven, Satan now stands before God and accuses man. And he says, man is guilty of lying to you. He doesn't really love you. But, but that, is, that is all camouflage. What he's doing right here in Zechariah 3 is actually camouflage surface accusations for Satan's real attack, which is what it was back in the garden. He's really attacking God. What do you, what do you think of when you hear these names? Uh, but this production here uh, in the theater right now is for a, uh, a, a group that, that focuses on C.S. Lewis. So let's go, let's channel C.S. Lewis here. What do you think of when you hear the name Edmund Pevensey? Chronicles of Narnia. Edmund, who sells out his brother and sisters in all of Narnia for some candy. How about this one? Should take you back. Carter Burke, Aliens. Not a kid's movie. Adult movie. Yeah, uh, Carter Burke, Aliens. Do you remember that one? The sleazy bureaucrat who sacrifices his military special ops team to smuggle in a xenomorph embryo. Such a good movie. Okay. Uh, Lord of the Rings. Sauron. Not Sauron. Sauron, the white wizard who abandons all hope and throws in with Sauron, the dark lord, because he's so scared. But this, what comes to mind when you hear this name? Fredo. You movie buffs. Or this is also but Fredo Corleone. Passed over by his dad, the godfather, for his younger brother, Michael. So he helps a rival gang make an attempt on Michael's life. 
The name Fredo is synonymous with the name Judas. Uh, the, the biggest backstabber in American history, how about this one? Benedict Arnold. It's too bad. My, my name is the French variant of that English name. Uh, Benedict Arnold. Arnold served the Continental Army with, with like great distinction. He was, this really, he was actually this really good general. He rose to the rank of major general. He had the full trust of General Washington. But Arnold felt passed over and felt used. And instead of biding his time, pressing on, doing the right thing, waiting for his day to come, he offered uh, to surrender West Point to the British in exchange for money and a general's commission but he got found out, and he fled to the British Isles. Uh, the biggest backstabber in all of literature, I think, belongs to Shakespeare. He writes a really good villain, Iago of Othello. Othello is so hard to read because Iago is awful. Like you just, you, I remember reading that for the first time in high school and throwing the play across the room because I hated Iago. Iago uh, is, is good friends, best friends with Othello, and Iago hates Othello for promoting a younger man over him. And Iago considers himself a more capable soldier than, than this other guy. So he finds an accomplice, and being the master manipulator that he is, he ends up taking the lives of Othello and Othello's wife and the life of his accomplice and his own wife's life when she gets in the way and tries to rat him out by telling the truth. How dare she? When you hear the name Satan... You should think traitor. You should think Judas, Benedict Arnold, Iago. I think Christianity, it is not about dualism. It is not about this thing of good versus evil as if God and the devil were, were more or less equal forces in, in, you know, in the world. Satan is a creature. Satan was created by God. And Satan was created by God to be good. He was created good. He's an angel created by God to serve God and to serve mankind. The way he's going to serve God is by serving mankind, and Satan can't stand it. He hates you because he thinks he's been passed over for you. And so he turns traitor to his own side. And yes, Satan has betrayed us. Yes, because he was supposed to serve us and help us. But even more, Satan has betrayed the trust of his creator and Lord. And Satan's real challenge here in the climactic vision, it, it, it's the, this, the, the, all the visions point to the fourth vision. We're going we're gonna to see as we go on. This climactic uh, vision, Satan's real challenge, it's an accusation against God. Satan is acting like a guardian angel. Like he's all concerned, like he's guarding the sanctity of God's holy place. And he's like, oh, this Joshua, oh, filthy, false, defiler of God's temple. But by, but by challenging Joshua, the high priest, Satan is actually challenging the Lord. As one commentator put it, he is ever so subtly calling into question the holiness of the God who consorts with such sinners and welcomes their presence and delights in their worship. Satan is, atta is attacking God for accepting the ministry of an allegedly 
unfit priest. The real attack is on the angel of the Lord who is not worthy in in Satan's eyes, who is not worthy to sit as judge of heaven and earth. Look, look at this disgusting uh, sinner, this high priest, your high priest. To To tolerate this priestly service and the defiled people represented by this defiled priest, the angel of the Lord, the insinuation is the angel of the Lord is responsible for the contamination of God's holy courts. As you go back to Genesis 3, the Christ angel here is guilty of the same failure of the first Adam to guard the holy garden. That Adam was expelled for his failure. So this Christ angel has also disqualified himself now and from any possible future mission as second Adam. Savior of sinners. is in Satan's tactics, they haven't changed. It's Satan's evil presence back in the garden here in Zechariah 3 where he's confronting a guardian of God's holy court, holy place. And in this, in the, he confronts this guardian who is actually tasked with repulsing such an evil presence as the devil. And each time, Satan's strategy is the same. It's to divert attention away from himself to something else to maintain his position. And the question is, Will the strategy succeed with the angel of the Lord as it had with Adam? And the beauty of it is he never even gets to make his accusation. It's so abrupt on purpose as in you're setting the scene and then all of a sudden the angel Lord speaks and he says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Before Satan can even speak his accusation, the Christ angel judge judges him and his rebuke is is so much more devastating than just shutting up the satan's accusations the christ angel's rebuke it is a destructive curse his rebuke silences satan and it condemns him and this the bad news for satan is good news for joshua bad news for the devil is good news for us bad news for the prosecutor means good verdict for the defendant And Satan, at this point, is probably throwing up his hands like, what? No! Like, come on! Because Satan wants to pretend that history was frozen after his initial success with Adam. As in, Adam transgressed that covenant of works. He deserves condemnation, that curse. And he he wants to ignore, and he wants the heavenly court to ignore that God comes immediately after the fall announcing this gospel of grace he wants to ignore all of that he doesn't want to hear it that that god would now save his people by grace through the life and through the death of a second adam a devil trampling savior this is genesis three fifteen. right after the fall god shows up as judge and he judges the devil and he says i will put in between enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring he shall crush her head and you shall strike his heel and here's Satan, and he wants to press this, this half-truth half lie. It's really a lie that here is the defiled high priest, the, the transgressor of the Mosaic covenant, which is also a covenant of works. As in, he wants to press, like, God, remember remember the, uh, the exile? Like, you did that. 
Lord of hosts, like you repudiated Israel. You drove them out of the land of promise. You're the one who handed them over to their enemies as captives. <clears throat> and it's a, this is a half-truth lie because Satan wants to ignore and he wants the court to ignore the, the story, the whole story of the kingdom of Israel. That God, one, he wants to ignore that God had just brought Israel back out of grace, back to the land, back, back to Israel. And, and he wants to ignore what Israel is, that Israel is a parable in history. Satan wants to ignore that Israel is about a symbolic kingdom holding on to a land, the land of Canaan, that symbolizes heaven. And the way they hold on to that land is by a measure of obedience. But that too is all symbolic. It's all given symbolic values, and they're not really earning heaven by works. The point is they can't even hold on to this land, the land of Canaan, through their obedience. And so Satan wants to ignore that the, the, that, uh, the covenant of grace promised to Adam and Abraham and his descendants. Uh, he wants to ignore all of that. Oh yeah, that grace stuff. No, 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 no. Let's, let's, he wants to look at this typological, this symbolic covenant of works with national Israel as if this is the new thing and the only thing that matters. Like this is how people get to heaven and it doesn't work. He wants to do away with grace. He wants to ignore that Israel is, really what Israel is, is a picture of mankind failing under a covenant of works just like Adam did. And, and it is a, picture israel is a picture pointing ahead to the need of a second adam to the need of true israel who himself will come and obey the law and who will not fail to save his people by grace so it's this thing of yeah joshua look at him filthy rags and all defiler and defiled and Jesus' answer is, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And then like, yeah, I get it. Is this not a sinner saved by grace from the consuming curse of fiery judgment? Is in the angel Lord, Jesus does not answer Satan's accusations with anything about Joshua's righteousness. He doesn't say anything about Joshua's deeds. He doesn't mention any of Joshua's obedience in his defense. He doesn't mention anything Joshua has ever done to defend him. He says, yeah, I know, and I plucked him out of the fire. Jesus has to pluck Josh Joshua out of the fire of judgment. Joshua is saved by grace, not by works. And from the fall, Satan's revolt is all about conspiring against this coming Savior who is full of grace. And God laughs at Satan's raging against this Savior. And the joke on Satan is that God makes, he actually makes the hostility of Satan contribute to the fulfillment of the gospel of grace. From Old Testament commentators put it like this, God permits Satan to continue to be a factor in human history according to God's unfathomable wisdom so that Satan can play his guilty part in the crucifixion of Jesus. The striking of the servant's heel which by the alchemy of God's divine promise of grace turns out to be the crushing of the serpent's head. And here's the so what for us. I know that that was just fire hydrant drinking right there, but here's the so what for the church. Before the Son of God came down to earth, okay, before Jesus 
Satan was permitted. Like we're seeing it here, Satan was permitted some kind of access to the heavenly council, and he's allowed to pose as a prosecuting attorney against God's people and against God himself. But then Jesus comes, and he lives and fulfills all righteousness on behalf of his people. And then he suffers fiery judgment on the cross, exhausting the wrath of God on behalf of his people. And then resurrected, he ascends into heaven, and he ascends to his throne as the successful priest king. And he prevails in defending his people based on his own accomplishments. So Satan is thrown out of heaven. This is what we read about in Revelation 12. Like you're reading about that historical account of Satan being thrown out of heaven, never allowed back in to make his case. Case closed. And since he's not allowed to make his case in heaven, since he's not allowed in heaven anymore, Satan comes to you. And now he makes his case to you. And he accuses you. And this is what you hear. You're a sinner. God could not love you. You're not worthy of his love. You are not worthy of his grace. And see, that's the trick. Like we hear like, not good enough. Yeah, that makes sense. Not worthy of grace. And we buy that lie. That's the point of grace. You're, none of us is worthy of it. Like that's grace. But we forget that. We forget that we are saved by grace. And so we, then, we, then we start to question like, yeah, why should I? Why should I even pray? Why go to church? Why try? I'm such a failure. Always, always, again and again and again with this sin. Yeah, how could Jesus love me? As in Satan is still accusing you. And he knows that he can't steal your salvation. But he wants you to ignore that fact. And his goal is to push you as far far away from God as he can push you. And if he pushes you away from God, he's pushing you away from the church. And if he is pushing you away from the church, he is doing tons of damage to the church. And that is what Satan is doing today. There are a a million books about the Civil War, but a pastor I know has a great-great-grandfather who was in this book a bunch of times, uh, this Civil War book. It's this journal and it talks about, like, there's just this one awful battle uh, one day. And after the battle, the soldier looks around and he says, There lay the trees cut down by bullets, the bloody ditch, the many dead and wounded, many crying for water, some begging to have the dead taken off of them. I don't expect to go to hell, but if, I'm, if I do, I'm sure hell can't beat this terrible scene. And then he describes the unit clearing out, and he says, And we halted in a pasture, and we broke ranks. And then came the reaction. All moved by the same impulse. We sat down on the wet ground and we wept. Not silently, but vociferously and long. Officers and men together. Some of the boys had been at outs with one another. They made friends and deplored the times that they had ever held an unkind thought against one so true and brave. Two fellows, both named Bill, who never got along rushed to each other's arms, begging forgiveness, swearing undying friendship. And he goes on and on and on. And he comes like, what, like, why? Like, what comes over them? What comes over them is they just went through the starkest reminder, oh yeah, you're not the enemy. 
Like, you're my brother. That's the enemy. Satan wants you to think that God is your enemy. And he wants you to think that the church is your enemy. Do not listen to him. Satan is your enemy. And you do not have to think of rebuking Satan and his lies as like standing up for yourself. You don't, you don't have to think of it as in standing up for yourself. Yeah, fine, Satan's right. We are sinners. But we are saved sinners. And when Satan attacks my salvation, he is attacking my Savior. And that I am not okay with. That I will not listen to. Martin Luther once said, when Satan tells me I'm a sinner, he comforts me immeasurably since Christ died for sinners. Loved ones, listen again to your Savior who says he loves you. He has saved you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for such a great salvation, so great it is hard to believe it. It is hard to get up again and again and again and trust that we have a, that we have a Savior who is so good, so perfect, so awesome, and so mighty, and yet loves us. When we, when we really, and it's scary, to, it's scary to even look in the mirror, but when we look inside our hearts and we see what's in us, Lord, it's easy to listen to the accusations. Help us to listen to you. Help us that when we hear the accusations, whether it's from the devil or our own heads, other people, help us to hear the accusations and then remember that is how awesome my Savior is. That our, that our Savior is even more awesome than we know. We pray that as we consider our sin, that the cross would be really big to us today. And tomorrow we pray that as we learn more about our sin, that the cross would just get bigger. That's our prayer. Help us to hold on to our Lord and our Savior and to listen to him and help us to do that together, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.